0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the ICU Ed and Toddcast, ICU Ed like education, Ed and Todd, Toddcast podcast. I am Eddie. He is Todd. And today we are going to, again, talk about ARDS. We talk about ARDS a lot, don't we, Todd?
1: We do, but it's also a common, relatively common thing that we see in the ICU. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And there's a lot of data here, a lot of evidence. Uh, this is mostly in line with what we try to do here on the Ed and Toddcast, where we bring you analysis, interpretation of recent literature and critical care. But this time, we're going to compare the recently published ATS ARDS guidelines with the recently published ESICM ARDS guidelines. We talked a little bit about the ESICM guidelines uh, and the definition change in episode 14. Great episode. Check it out. So in this episode, we're going to highlight the key differences and then give some takes on them. Uh, one programming update. We have got a long neglected but slowly growing mailbag the intent was to do it this episode but i'm on service been a little bit busy so we're going to defer that
1: another couple of weeks oh that's news to me i thought we were doing the mailbag yeah
0: it's news to you yeah you haven't been in the unit this weekend uh, let's just say that got it todd any initial thoughts on the guidelines
1: i mean i think part of the reason that this is a good episode and is an episode i was looking forward to is i think there's some things in the guidelines that we don't necessarily do in our practice of the care of these patients with ARDS. And so I think talking about that, talking about what is the evidence that made the authors of the guidelines say, and we'll get into some of this, but we give a conditional recommendation that you do this when in general we, and you never say never, but in general, we don't do this in our practice, at least not the vast majority of the time, These some of these practices. And then I think it is informative and probably a, a way to enrich our knowledge of the literature by comparing the ESICM and the ATS guidelines that are the most recent versions, because they differ a little bit, and where they differ is where you'll see, I think, either conflicting data or data that are sort of maybe a little suggestive but not really definitive, and people are interpreting them in different
0: ways. Yeah, and this is this is the kind of interesting thing to talk about. This is where where the discussion really can happen because if it's if it's very clear they're going to have the same recommendation, and they do have the same recommendation.
1: I also think it's interesting that both of them start off by telling you that this is an update of the 2017 guidelines, which was the same guideline. They did those guidelines together. It was ATS, SCCM, and ESICM, and then I guess ESICM and ATS kind of split for this one and kind of did their own updates to their combined guidelines from 2017, which uh, is an interesting little
0: twist. You don't have any peek behind the curtain there where there are disagreements on some of the things that are different here that we're going to highlight, or?
1: No, I don't have any any peek behind the curtain. Having done some guidelines uh, in critical care nutrition that initially were coordinated between two societies and then subsequently became one society, it turned out that it was all logistics and trying to get all of the right people together to have both societies agree that they wanted to do it again. And I wonder if this is less nefarious about somebody saying, I don't agree with that. We're going to have our own guidelines and more about trying to get administrative type people to agree that this is something that they wanted to continue to collaborate on.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's that's interesting. Logistics is a big part of all of academic medicine and research and now these guidelines apparently as well.
1: I will say it's also interesting that if you look at the authors, there's five or six authors that are actually authors on both of the guidelines. Oh, really? I didn't realize which that. Which is kind of interesting because there are some differences in the guidelines. <laughs> so you're kind of are recommending in one, maybe not recommending in the other, which yeah. is – there's only a couple of Which places a where bit they're different. Yeah, I know, but it's still a little bit of a head scratcher. To
0: me. Uh, there's no trial <laughs> acronym this episode. Todd, what do you think about ATS, E S I C M, and ARDS as acronyms? ATs, ESCIM, and ARDS feels like the beginning of a child's nursery rhyme.
1: Yeah, the one thing I will say is is that as a little bit of comedy for the for the podcast. In about, I don't know, less than a decade ago, the ATS came out and decided that they were going to have fellowships. They were going to have fellows of ATS, like you have fellows of critical care medicine and fellows of the American College of Chest Physicians and that sort of stuff. And somebody asked me at one point, are you going to apply to be a fellow? And I thought about it pretty quickly. And I said, well, no, because that would make me a FATS. <laughs> and who wants to be a FATS? Uh, and F- it turns out F-A-T-S. that- ATS, yeah, yeah, it turns out that they actually call it A-T-S-F. <laughs> ATS fellows instead of fats, but I was like, good night. That's a horrible idea. (laughs) Um, so ATS, not necessarily the best acronym because when you have fellows of your society, you now become fats. Uh, the other thing I'd, I'd say, but Ty,
0: you're already there. So
1: the other thing I'd say is, is that ARDS is an interesting acronym. It obviously is a good acronym for the acute respiratory distress syndrome, but we have arguments all the time about, should we call this acute lung injury? Should we call it ARDS? Is there a difference between the two? What's the correct term? What's the correct name? I still think that that rears its head a little bit. Uh, every couple of years, we have these these sort of discussions. As you know, uh, I was part of the PEDAL network, which was the prevention and early treatment of acute lung injury. And we actually had a discussion in the room about, should we should we call it petard, which was the prevention <laughs> and early treatment of ARDS. Uh, yeah, petards. Uh it rhymed with a bunch of bad things, so we decided that we were we were not going to call it petards. Um but pedal essentially studied kind of ARDS but we called it acute lung injury instead. So I think there's there's that. So you're just uh, saying that they're interchangeable there. All right. You you would have used either um, I think I think so, yeah. I, I think so. And I think having settled on what the right answer is there is still to be determined.
0: Yeah, no, fair. And, and there's like very technical differences between ALI and ARDS, which we won't get into right now. But I, I think we can defer the grading of these societies and these acronyms here. So I'm going to lay out the major structure of the each of the ATS and the ESICM updates. Uh, not the full guidelines, just the published updates, just to give us some structure for our conversation. The ESICM updates were published in June of 2023 by Griselli et al. and had nine domains. ARDS definition phenotyping, high-flow nasal cannula, CPAP and NIV, low-tidal volume ventilation, PEEP and recruitment maneuvers, prone positioning, neuromuscular blockade agents, and ECMO. The ATS guideline update was published by Kadir et al. just recently and organized into four questions, corticosteroids, ECMO, neuromuscular blockade, PEEP, and recruitment maneuvers. So I think we'll step through each of the ATS guidelines and review what we've said about those topics in the past, uh, and then compare them to the ESICM guidelines. Sound good,
1: Todd? Yeah, let's quickly do the areas of ESICM that ATS doesn't, because I think we can do them quickly, that ATS doesn't doesn't uh, discuss. Yeah, we, we've talked about the- de- We've talked about the definition yeah. and the changing definition. We've talked some about a little, phenotypes. Mm-hmm, a little bit about the phenotyping. how it's a little bit too early for prime time is something that we're yeah. interested in. Phenotypes, I think, are, are, and I think this is what we kind of came down to as our conclusion when we talked about it in detail, but I think it's very, very provocative, and I think it has potential in the future, but it needs to be studied prospect. And we need to understand if we can identify different phenotypes that we might be able to do different interventions in prospectively.
0: Using Uh, tests that are things that we could get back in a reasonable time frame where these where applying these interventions makes sense. Like three months? Yeah, about,
1: just about. (laughs) Uh, We didn't talk, we haven't talked about non-invasive CPAP and high flow, but the real takeaway from that is sort of that mm, the data aren't robust enough to make strong recommendations on any of those. And that- Non-invasive and high flow may decrease the need for innovation, but they don't seem to change mortality from the data and the trials that are currently available, yeah. which admittedly are limited.
0: Yeah, that for me was like just our ability to take care of patients and the, the machinery and uh, equipment that we have has evolved over time, and so the guidelines
1: are trying to evolve with that. It brings up, and this was true for awake prone positioning too in COVID, but it brings up a big question in my mind and. I'm old enough that I can remember this. You're young enough that you don't remember this. When ARMA, low tidal volume ventilation or lung protective ventilation by the ARDS network came out, it was eye-opening to a number of people because prior to that, we had used oxygenation as a surrogate for the patient's going to do better if their oxygenation's better. And in ARMA, the higher tidal volume group had better oxygenation. And when I talk about it, I joke better oxygenation right up until they died more compared to the low tidal volume group. And I think that was somewhat eye-opening because it made us realize, hmm, maybe oxygenation isn't a good surrogate and it was one that we shouldn't use. Yeah, it's how you get there, right? Well, and where I'm going with this is is that we've always tied innovation and mortality together. And now we have a number of studies – whether it be high flow nasal cannula, non-invasive ventilation, awake prone positioning that have this disconnect where they seem to prevent innovation, but don't have an effect on mortality. And it makes me wonder if innovation doesn't necessarily lead to mortality like we used to think it did. And if we should separate those as two truly independent and probably both clinically relevant outcomes.
0: Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think the rest of it is our things that are covered in both. I had a quick question, like so the the both these guidelines where they can, they use primary literature, they use peer reviewed systematic reviews and meta analyses where they can. but for some of these topics that that doesn't exist, and so they use pooled analyses quote unquote. Any comments on that, Jeff, is it important for our interpretation of these guidelines?
1: I, I think the important part is to to review and understand the rigor of the evidence for that to occur. we need the authors of the the guidelines to, to be transparent with the evidence that they've used. And I think both of these are transparent, very transparent with the evidence that they used. But that then allows you as the reader to say, oh, now I understand the evidence and I can make my own judgment as to whether I agree with that recommendation. I disagree with that recommendation. I think this evidence is overwhelmingly in favor of this recommendation, even though they only give it a, a lukewarm recommendation or eh, I'm not so sure I I agree that the evidence is that supportive of, of that recommendation.
0: Uh, on my end, I'm going to be going through a lot of a data here. So I'm going to be actually a little bit lighter on the numbers and the odds ratios than I normally am because otherwise, you all as listeners would just be listening to me read lists of numbers for 45 minutes. Uh, so we'll start off with steroids. First off, the, the ESICM guidelines don't actually mention corticosteroids. There's not, we have no recommendation, Is actually just missing nothing comes up in a word search. There isn't a comparison. Absence
1: makes the heart grow fonder.
0: Yeah. ATS update suggests using corticosteroids for patients with ARDS. It's a conditional recommendation with a moderate certainty of evidence. I'll give a brief review on this topic. We've talked a little about this before. We talked about DEXA-ARDS. So the thought is that if ARDS is damage to the lungs from total body inflammation or local lung inflammation, well, why not anti-inflame the body or anti-inflame the lungs with steroids. There are many trials in COVID that show benefit of steroids. Cape Cod showed a benefit of steroids in critically ill patients with community-acquired pneumonia. And then uh, DEXA ARDS stopped early but appeared beneficial for both decreasing the time on the ventilator and for decreasing mortality in ARDS. Uh, these ATS guidelines performed a pooled analysis suggesting benefits to mortality, length of stay, time on the ventilator, but maybe there's more hyperglycemia and GI bleeding, which is are things that we're mindful of when we give patients steroids. Like I said, we've talked a little bit about this before, Any quick thoughts on steroids before I dive into specifics?
1: Well, I think the first thing is let's take a step back and and recognize that the ATS guidelines has two different recommendation levels. They have like a hard recommendation that's sort of like you should build this into your protocols in your unit and you should do this pretty much in everybody. Yeah, and then
0: there's this conditional part, which I'm going to step into in a second.
1: And this is one of those conditional parts, which says – Essentially we think this is a good idea for most of your patients there may be times when you may not want to do this. Yeah. You know this is a hard area we, this is something we don't routinely do in our patients with ARDS. No. We we do it in a reasonable number because we are starting to do it for severe community acquired pneumonia now. Not necessarily protocolized, but more of us are doing it for severe community acquired pneumonia. We do it for patients that have ARDS and wheezing and we may have COPD or asthma. We do it in patients who have COVID. So, so we're doing this in some of our patients with ARDS, but not, not uniformly in our patients with ARDS. And the hard part for me here is, is that. The point estimate and the 95% confidence interval suggests that this is beneficial, but there's tons of heterogeneity in these trials. And they say in here, right, the reason they say steroids and then they give you no other information is because nobody has any idea which steroid, what dose, what duration. It's like this huge black box. Yeah. that's the conditional
0: part of it, right? So like the heterogeneity, of the timing, the type, the dose, the duration, and that there's a lack of rigorous evaluation of like the both the short and the long-term side effects of steroids. We got a little bit of the GI bleed, but there are other side effects of steroids that just weren't evaluated at all.
1: The other thing, and they didn't find this, but the other thing that I'll say to the listeners is, is that there are a number of trials not trials that's not fair uh meta-analyses or systematic reviews of steroids in some condition and they say we didn't find any side effects no increased incidence of hyperglycemia as soon as they say that i like stop reading like steroids cause hyperglycemia <laughs> they they do we see it all the time and that's not to say we shouldn't use them we know it's coming we can treat it we can uh, deal with it appropriately and i don't want to mislead the listener here the ats guidelines do find higher rates of hyperglycemia in patients treated with steroids. So I think on face validity, at least for me, their meta-analysis looks like it has some face validity because they also recognize there was a side effect that has been very well recognized with steroid use. And I see every single day I give patients steroids in my practice. So I went back and
0: reviewed what we talked about D- at One, it was quite interesting because you had mentioned something about steroids and community-acquired pneumonia and how you didn't know that like that was a clear benefit and like two weeks later after we dropped that pod Cape Cod came out so I think you were holding back on me there that's not the point on the podcast you said that yeah exactly this the data is provocative, one of your favorite words on the podcast, yeah, but you weren't ready to adopt it into your practice. But that makes you more open to the idea that there's a subpopulation that steroids may benefit in ARDS, and we need to find out who that is. With these guidelines, like, of course, there's no new data, but do you have any changes in that thought process from reading that? I guess the question might be more, well, if the data for steroids studied on population of general heterogeneous ARDS shows a mortality benefit, that suggests that you're doing more good than potential harm, right? And then that's even assuming that giving steroids is harmful for some populations, which I don't think we have any data to suggest that there's harm.
1: Well, I mean, first, if you don't look for the data, you won't get it. Fair. So I think we don't have a great understanding of long-term effects of steroids uh, that we give patients in the acute setting, like with ARDS. We do have some data from Lazarus of harmful effects that there was more neuromuscular weakness and patients went back in the ventilator faster or not faster, more. That wasn't early steroids. That was actually late. That's yeah, the, the LA, LA part of Lazarus. And if You started steroids after 14 days in Lazarus. Now this is a, this was a a subgroup analysis and a postdoc subgroup analysis. So take that with a grain of salt. But if you started it after 14 days in that group, there was actually a worse mortality in that population. So now how long are you going to give your steroids? Yeah. Are you going to stop them before 14 days? Are you going to continue them? Yeah, I mean, this is the problem that I have with them. Is is that
0: the Dexa ARDS protocol was ten days, right? So it was like twenty migs of dexamethasone, which is a huge dose. Like it's like one hundred and thirty prednisone equivalents for five days, and then ten migs of dexamethasone for five days. Imagine if they'd reported
1: no hyperglycemia with that. (sighs) Yeah, that would that would be impressive. I think
0: (laughs) got a bad batch of dexamethasone there,
1: right? Yeah, I think if you wanted to do the Dexa ARDS protocol, that I think is. I you know I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily beat you up over it. I still wonder if we're at this point where if I didn't do that, is somebody going to sit on the other side of a courtroom to me and say you you didn't provide standard of care and you yeah you no know, no didn't, no didn't treat this patient appropriately.
0: Well, I guess that's uh, I I was going to dismiss that right away, but now there's a guideline that says that you should. Now I, I still don't think that someone could sue you over that, but even taking the legality out of it. If we think that this is beneficial for our patients as a whole in this heterogeneous population... I'm
1: completely on board with that. That's just where you and I differ. Yeah. I'm just not entirely convinced that this is beneficial for my patients on a whole. And while we have a meta-analysis that's suggestive that there's a reduction in mortality, it includes some COVID studies. It includes DEXA-ARDS, which... Has, but pre
0: COVID, right? Dexatories came out be effectively before COVID. Which
1: was which was pre-COVID, but as we've talked about, also has some methodological things that make you take a pause. Sure. It does also include a few studies that are negative. So there's there's just a lot of for me, I say heterogeneity, which is not true meta-analysis heterogeneity. It's heterogeneity in that the there doesn't seem to be like this. This signal that hops out to me and says, Oh, this is obviously the answer for this question. And that's, that's where I struggle with this. And as I said, I don't not give my patients with ARDS steroids. It's just I don't use ARDS as an indication to give my patients by itself as an indication to give my patients steroids. If they have other things going on, if they have what appears to be hyperinflammatory process, if they have wheezing, if they have Covid. If they have, you know, many other things, they end up getting steroids from me anyway. Um, so, but so you my- have,
0: so you have a patient comes in with ARDS, and for for whatever reason, maybe they had like it's an X ray because they had fell of their ankle and osteo, and someone got a CRP, and their CRP was elevated. Would you give them steroids? Like hyper- evidence of a hyperinflammatory
1: state? Maybe. Is there is their I ankle mean, still is, uh, <laughs>
0: you know open and is, infected? Isn't ARDS itself enough of a evidence of a hyperinflammatory
1: state? Maybe. So you have a patient that comes in with gallstone pancreatitis who develops ARDS. Are you giving that patient steroids?
0: I think so, unless it was like because of their pancreatitis, they were giving just tons and tons of fluid. And I think their hypoxia respiratory failure is just volume overload. Yeah. but no, They have ARDS. They don't have volume overload. Yeah, I think so. Because if you're saying that it's the inflammation from the pancreas to- causing yep. total body inflammation that's now stressing out the lungs – I, this this is what I think the data is trying to tell me right now. Now, I agree with you. It's not the highest level of evidence otherwise, but we're, we have to make decisions for our patients right now with this level of evidence.
1: I completely agree. And with this level of evidence in the pancreatitis patient, I'm not giving that patient steroids. That's, I think I'm, that's completely fine. I'm worried their hyperglycemia is going to be difficult to control. I'm worried they're going to have, you know, downstream effects of their steroids. And I'm not convinced that it's ultimately going to be that beneficial for them.
0: But at least for some of like the, I think – the, because the level of evidence is not super clear, I think it's also – I'm not wed to the steroids either. So if you have difficult to control hyperglycemia, if they're having issues with delirium that's interfering with our ability to care for them, I, I'd be okay with saying stop the steroids. Yeah. Um, but I think I would start them up front yeah. potentially.
1: Yeah, I, I mean I think we're just in two different potential spots on the spectrum, which I think the level of the evidence for steroids – is going to have people all over the spectrum
0: and yeah. in what they want to do, and then you're going to, and then there's going to be more data, and then you'll, uh, I'll end up finding that you're probably right, and we'll, we'll move on. So. Well, I, I
1: think though, what we're going to find with more data is, is that it's a yes and no, and I think we're going to find that there are populations that we should be preferentially giving steroids to, and then there yeah. are populations that they're not beneficial, and you just end up and giving lots of insulin to treat their hyperglycemia.
0: I, I've been saying this for a long time. I've said this on the pod before. I think that you know when you go back and look at all these things that we've studied for ARDS and all these neutral trials once we are able to figure out like different etiologies or different phenotypes or other other things i think it is going to be worth looking back at some of the things we've already studied in the past they were studied for a good reason and they may work in different subpopulations but i think for steroids it's showing that for the population as a whole there's a benefit so even if it's only some populations it's probably the majority of the sub the subpopulations that's just kind of where I'm at yeah
1: the other the other thing that I worry about with the steroids is is that they're they're actually may be a therapeutic window for both dose and duration yeah and I don't think we know what it is no and, and that and makes last me time very we, very very nervous
0: and we talked about like you know in covid when we had a lot of patients in these high-powered studies, studied higher dose, lower dose, not really a big difference with higher dose. We did longer durations and shorter durations. So yeah, I I think you're right. It's a difficult place to be. On to number two, ECMO. The ATS guidelines suggest the use of VV ECMO in select patients with severe ARDS, a conditional recommendation and a low certainty of evidence. The ESICM guidelines recommend that patients with severe ARDS defined by the EOLIA trial eligibility criteria should be treated with ECMO in an ECMO center which means defined organizational standards adhering to management strategies similar to those used in the Olia trial. They, they had a strong recommendation with a low-level evidence. These are pretty similar. I don't think we need to spend too much time here. Both cite a low-level evidence because it's, uh, there's just not a lot, large volume of ECMO trials, but both recommend it. ATS is conditional more or less on the condition that was just spelled out in the ESICM recommendation, that it's resource-intensive, It requires experience to manage and needs to be done thoughtfully at an ECMO center with people who meet criteria similar to Eolia's criteria. I I don't know, Todd. uh, We just talked about Eolia on our last pod. I don't think we have – I have too much to add here as far as ECMO for ARDS.
1: Yeah, I agree. But this is also where they're transparent with it so you can look at the data on your own. And for me, the data here are stronger than they are for steroids, for example, Uh, while there's only two trials – because there's only two
0: trials, there's a l- lack of heterogeneity, right? So if there's like more ECMO trials, there might be more heterogeneity,
1: maybe, maybe but there's two it, trials you just
0: that, said you just said if you don't look for it, you don't
1: know, right? There's two trials that both have sort of the same signal, yeah, uh, which is that it appears that it's probably beneficial uh, as opposed to the steroids, where there's four hundred and seventy four trials, half of which have about a benefit and half of which don't have nearly uh, the benefit or no benefit at all. And so that that to me is how I find it interesting that these recommendations are similar, but they get to a similar spot by different paths.
0: Yeah. No, the ECMO
1: true. one being there's only two trials. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. I'm not sure there's going to be another large ECMO versus non-ECMO trial. I, I don't think so.
0: I think my read of the room for ECMO trials is that we're not – going to do ECMO versus no ECMO any, anymore. Like your bedroom or what room? Yeah, I read in my bedroom. I have eolia just like kind of like plastered up on the Perfect. ceiling so I can Perfect. remember the criteria every night, recite it before I go to bed, recite it when I go, wake up in the morning.
1: Yeah, Evie's first words were eolia.
0: Well, I'll, I'll tell you. So when we were at Chest, my daughter, I brought her to Chest because it was in the <laughs> city that we live in. And I I thought you know she would just sit there quietly while i sat sat in a conference presentation that wasn't true they were talking about ecmo and they brought up a slide that just said eolia positive trial or negative trial and evie just started yelling so she had strong opinions but i just don't know which one yeah. <laughs> which one it was i don't know yeah. if she believes Eolia or not
1: yeah My- well welcome to fatherhood that'll be true for her probably until she's i don't know 30 or 35. <sighs> She'll have strong opinions and you won't actually know what they she's are. She's going to be on the playground when she's 12. me I mean, like,
0: Eolia, is definitely positive. She's going to be the weird kid. I already know that.
1: As far as ECMO goes, we've started doing this- Good segue. Uh, eight years ago, 10 years ago. Uh, we've done more and more of it. We think that we know what we're doing with it. We've adjusted our inclusion exclusion criteria a little bit, depending on how our past experience has gone and how what our resource capacity is, et cetera, et cetera. I think in general, the feeling is, is that again, in the right patients, I think the right patients may be a little easier to identify here than in steroids, but in the right patients, this is probably benefiting their patients.
0: Yeah. How much does your prior play into this difference that you feel between ECMO and steroids? Like you said in the past that your prior is that you're not a big believer in steroids.
1: Yeah, but I wasn't a big believer in ECMO either. Oh, were you? I mean, I would talk about how the Caesar trial was flawed and we would joke that you had a patient that met the criteria and you really wanted them to get better. You just put them in a helicopter, fly them around, land them. We are a tertiary center and an ECMO center and therefore, they're better just because we sent them to an ECMO center. So before Eolia, I I had real questions about whether or not we should be doing ECMO. I I think with Eolia, to me, that was a positive trial that appeared to be beneficial for patients. And I think even since then, we've gotten better at the technology part, the equipment part, the decreasing complications from the equipment part. And for me, that's what won me over with the ECMO world.
0: Yeah, it's going to be my role as a father to guide Evie towards that thought process too, so.
1: Yeah, it's a very mature thought process. Thank you.
0: Uh, number three, neuromuscular blockade. The ATS guidelines here suggest using neuromuscular blockade in patients with early severe ARDS. This is another conditional recommendation and low level of certainty. The SICM guidelines recommend against the routine use of continuous infusions of neuromuscular, neuromuscular blockade to reduce the mortality in patients with moderate to severe ARDS with a strong recommendation and a moderate level of evidence.
1: Good God, I think my head's going to explode.
0: Uh-oh. They're head-to-head here. Uh, this is the content that people are looking for, right? Let's dive a little bit deeper into these. I guess first, Todd, why should I even begin to think that neuromuscular blockade or paralysis is beneficial for patients with ARDS?
1: I think early the early study, the uh, a curasis, a curious, It's a hard word for me to say. study by uh, Papazian and colleagues actually suggested that routine, 48 hours of neuromuscular blockade early in the course of ARDS, improved outcomes, decreased mortality in the adjusted analysis, not in the unadjusted analysis, but in the adjusted analysis, decreased mortality. And there were two thoughts, I think. One was you remove any Potential for ventilator-induced lung injury, patient-induced lung injury, dyssynchrony with the ventilator, breaths that are brought about by the patient that are not lung protective, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because the patient can't essentially influence their breaths at all. They can't start them. They can't make them bigger. They can't desynchronize all of that because they're neuromuscular blocked. Secondly, uh, cysatricurium was used in acrocysts, and cysatricurium is thought to have some anti-inflammatory properties, and that may actually have contributed to the positive benefit, the potential yeah, beneficial the effects of it. Pleiotropic effects of cysatricurium. And then, as I said, the third group, which said, yeah, both of those.
0: Both yeah. of those things. And I've heard some other, like, ancillary effects, like, oh, well, you're… Decreasing your peripheral muscle oxygen demand, and so there's more oxygen for the rest of your organs and other things from that perspective. I think this one, this one's confusing, and that's probably why there end up being different recommendations. There are several trials of neuromuscular blockade. You mentioned one of them, Acurasis. The most recent, or at least the largest of these trials, is Rose, done by the Pedal Network that yep. you were talking about before. That I'm an investigator on, in full disclosure. Uh, and it showed no benefit of early deep sedation with neuromuscular blockade compared to light sedation. And I uh, highlighted the sedation portions of that because I think that's a big confounder in that trial, right? We're fairly confident that routine deep sedation is harmful for patient outcomes. So it really felt like a an apples and oranges comparison to me, Rose was. It, you, if you can get away with light sedation, you probably don't have the dyssynchrony that you propose is what neuromuscular blockade helps with. So then you have to go back in time and go back to curasis, um, which is deep sedation versus deep sedation with neuromuscular blockade. And that curasis, and that did demonstrate a mortality benefit. A curasis was you got them to deep sedation, and then it was paralysis versus placebo. So all the patients were deeply sedated.
1: Yeah. And to be clear, a was a blinded trial. Yeah. Placebo. So if you can't tell the difference between when a patient is neuromuscular blocked and not, they are deeply sedated in the control arm. Yeah. I mean, like, they are definitely deeply sedated.
0: Yeah. And so that and so curis has demonstrated a mortality benefit. So I feel like that's saying paralysis is beneficial on top of deep sedation, um, but it may not be get to deep sedation to paralyze someone. If if that makes sense.
1: Well, and that's what the ATS said in their discussion. They say, well, maybe the right people to use neuromuscular blockade in are the people that you having to deeply sedate and or the patients who, despite deep sedation, are still having dyssynchrony. And therefore, you know, you should you should provide neuromuscular blockade. But I think we have to be a little bit careful because neither of the two trials use that strategy. Yes. Yes, that's fair. And so we don't know that that's truly going to provide benefit to the patients that we have in deep sedation. The other thing I'd say is that if you look at ROSE, while the control arm was try and make the sedation as light as you can, there was still a fair amount of rather deep sedation in that group just because patients that have severe ARDS, they don't tolerate light sedation that well. Uh, they become dyssynchronous with the ventilator. They get a little hypoxic when they're moving around, all those sorts of things, and they get sedated more. More deep sedation in the control arm
0: there would be a bias towards the null potentially, right?
1: Yeah, potentially. Potentially. But what I'm saying is, is that I'm not sure that you can fully explain the difference between the two by, oh, well, the control arms were just all sedated differently. I think the strategies were different. And I think there is some difference in the way they were implemented and what the patients received. But I'm not sure it was like, you know, everybody in the control arm of Rose was on 0.5 of DEX and would wake up and you know, yeah. play checkers with oh, us yeah. and everybody in T- that's totally accuracy, This was deeply sedated. Yeah, I'm
0: just I'm just saying that it's it's really hard for me to interpret Rose with that just huge confounder there, where did, with the difference in sedation or the difference in protocolized sedation, I think, is is the big difference. And so it wasn't an apples but, and apples comparison.
1: But yeah, but the problem is is that that's the that's the standard we currently at least in our ICU we currently do is we try and do as light of sedation as the patient will tolerate. Right. And so, so that's why verse, that was the It was con- versus usual care. Yeah, right? that's why that was the control Or what should in, be usual care. In Rose. Rose was also an unblinded study.
0: So the ATS guidelines kind of touched on this point, point, but and they said they stopped short of recommending it because effectively because there was a lack of data. I feel like a practice that I think a lot of us, if you kind of really go back and analyze what you do, end up doing anyway, but something maybe we can be a little bit more mindful of is if you feel like you need to get to the point of deep sedation, then potentially by the time you get to racing at a five, you should be have a lower threshold to pull that trigger for neuromuscular blockade. I, I feel like that's kind of kind of where the ATS wanted to get, um, but they said that they stopped short of recommending that.
1: Yeah, I think it's an okay recommendation. I think that we just have to be transparent that that's not what either of this the trials studied. And so we're yeah. extrapolating from the results and how we interpret those results into this is how I think I'd do it in practice. The other question here is 48 hours, is that the right time period? And do we really know all of the downsides of 48 hours of neuromuscular blockade? Uh, accuracy looked at weakness and they did the MRC score. And they found weakness. Yeah. So you'll get, a, but it wasn't a ton of weakness.
0: Yeah. But it's, but it's additional weakness beyond deep sedation.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. But what about like paralysis aware awareness? And what about, you know, longer term effects and disability at six months and that sort of stuff? So I I do think there's there's some unknowns here that would be nice to get some additional data to further understand. It doesn't necessarily have to be randomized data, but to try and get a better understanding of what the potential downsides of, hey, this patient's deeply sedated. I guess I'll just throw 48 hours of cystic curia in it, man.
0: Oh, you sound like a guideline. I like, need more data. need more data before I can provide a recommendation.
1: My my recommendation to get more data is a conditional recommendation.
0: <laughs> uh, taking a step back to Only the two guidelines. get the data I want.
1: I, I think the difference
0: is ultimately just semantics in the end. The ATS panel saw that there is a mortality benefit recommended in severe ARDS. And in many patients with severe ARDS, they have deep sedation already on board. But that isn't universal, as we've talked about. The ESICM guidelines took the stance of, well, neuromuscular blockade comes hand in hand with deep sedation, and we don't want to recommend deep sedation, so they recommend against it. I think that's, that's what drives a
1: difference. I think ultimately they were both peace offerings. The Europeans went with the American study. And the Americans went with the European study. Oh, that's funny. I didn't realize that.
0: Number four, PEEP and recruitment maneuvers. Uh, Here, the ATS guidelines suggest using a higher PEEP without lung recruitment maneuvers rather than a lower PEEP in patients with moderate to severe ARDS. This is a conditional recommendation with a low to moderate certainty. Uh, They recommend against using prolonged lung recruitment maneuvers, which is defined as a PEEP of greater than or equal to 35 centimeters of water for uh, more than a minute, in patients with moderate to severe ARDS, and that's that's a strong recommendation with moderate level of certainty. The ESICM guidelines make a formal, quote, no recommendation on both PEEP and recruitment maneuvers. So less drama here, but still a little bit of difference. Let's touch briefly, I think, first on the quicker part of this two-part recommendation. They recommend against recruitment maneuvers. Todd, I I've never done a recruitment maneuver. I think it fell out of practice before I started training. What are those and why do we think that they could have been helpful or why do people think they could have been
1: helpful? Going back to my army days when I did recruitment maneuvers. No, I'm kidding. Recruitment maneuvers are essentially high pressure for a prolonged period of time to try and recruit atelectatic areas of the lung that you then have to follow it up with something to keep that atelectatic area that you've just recruited open so that it doesn't collapse again. And they were popular you know, back when you were an infant, probably back in the days, they were studied in alveoli, which was a ARDS network trial of higher PEEP. And they were abandoned in alveoli from a physiologic standpoint. And that was that they were found to have significant hypotension and peri-arrests with them. And I think that's physiologically not a surprise. When you do that, you decrease Venus return, decreased preload, and when the heart doesn't get any preload, you don't have any stroke volume. When you don't have any stroke volume, and you're sick, uh, you don't have any blood pressure.
0: Yeah, and then there's also the RV afterload. I mean, for both of these, increased pressure in the heart. Yeah, increased RV afterload, decreased RV
1: preload. Well, that's that seems like a bad combination in an RV that may already be under strain. Yeah. 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 Right. And so I think people were starting to move away from them. And then the the ART trial, the ART trial, used them in their strategy to try and actually recruit areas and then keep them open. And again, saw some hemodynamic compromise when they were doing them and abandoned them halfway through the trial. Uh, and I think that experience and the fact that there, I don't think, have been any studies from a clinical outcome standpoint that have shown that they have a benefit to clinical outcomes that result in in people abandoning them. The one caution that I have that I can still still get worried about is, is that people chalk up the higher mortality in the ART trial to the recruitment maneuvers. And if you look at that manuscript closely, when they abandoned the recruitment maneuvers in the second half of the trial, they then did an analysis to see if their signal was different in the first half and the second half, and it actually wasn't. Yeah, they didn't find that. Which suggests that all of that detriment of what their strategy was was not necessarily attributable to just recruitment maneuvers.
0: When I was at the ESICM conference this past year, I listened to a pro con style debate on recruitment maneuvers. And the best argument that I heard for them was that the studies that used a protocol that was like was too much. The the pressure was too high and you used it for too long and that recruitment maneuvers may be beneficial if you use lower
1: pressures for a shorter period of times,
0: they might be right, but you know, that argument doesn't exactly have me racing to implement that into my practice.
1: Well, and the, the, SC, the SICM guidelines even talk a little bit about brief recruitment maneuvers and yeah. short recruitment maneuvers and still kind of say, yeah, we're still not in favor of those. We still recommend against even less aggressive recruitment maneuvers. A- having said that, this is, Protocolized like recruitment maneuvers to try and recruit. We're not talking about recruitment maneuvers when your patient's hypoxic and you think they're dying because there are, at least in my anecdotal experience, and I think some evidence that a recruitment maneuver pro- acutely may improve oxygenation, whether that's yeah, something that you want to do. We just do talked or not. about
0: that, right? Like yeah. oxygenation of the surrogate. We probably actually do like rescue recruitment maneuvers. I mean, what happens when you know, have a patient's really hypoxic and you Pop them off and bag them, right? Yeah, what what, what are we doing? Right. We're we're bagging them aggressively yeah. and we're effectively
1: doing a recruitment maneuver. Yeah, and in clarity, the oxygenation that we talked about with ARMA was oxygenation in general, not trying to rescue somebody from what you think is life threatening hypoxia. But
0: it's the same uh, mechanism of increased oxygenation, right? The uh, increased oxygenation in ARMA in theory was because you had an increased yeah. mean airway pressure. And a recruitment maneuver is increasing their mean airway pressure. Right. Different different goals.
1: Yeah. And a different patient population. Absolutely. Like if you're doing it as a rescue, you're doing it because you think your patient's going to die on you in the next 15 minutes, not because you're doing it as a general principle of treatment of a patient with ARDS. For all patients with ARDS and whatnot.
0: Yeah. Uh, Anyway, PEEP, the ATS suggests using high PEEP. When I think of high PEEP versus low PEEP, I think of the alveoli study, which you had already um, mentioned. It was published in 2004. The thought is that high PEEP recruits the alveoli, prevents the atelecta trauma, which I'm not sure is a real word, but the damage from the cyclic co- collapsing and opening of the alveoli. But as we talked about, there's deleterious effects of too much pressure in the chest, positive pressure in the chest on the right heart, both on the preload and the afterload Besides, I think the data in this high PEEP, low PEEP is really hard to summarize but I'll try my best. And it's mostly because a lot of these PEEP targets are combined with recruitment maneuvers. So the ATS guidelines at least reference a meta-analysis by Deontay et al. published in the Blue Journal or the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, which tries to tease these out individually. And in their meta-analysis, it showed that the high PEEP without recruitment maneuvers was associated with improved mortality and oxygenation, and then also increased ventilator days. There are older meta-analyses that suggested that there was Only benefit in high PEEP for those with moderate to severe ARDS. I I have some thoughts here, Todd, but I think I'll, let me, let me get yours here first.
1: Oh, you're too chicken to tell me your thoughts. (laughs) Uh, Fine. Get it. Chicken. PEEP.
0: Oh, I did not get that. I did not get that. That's that's a good one, Todd. Uh, (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh, I think the question is between what is the harm and then how committed are you to doing this? The harms are of higher PEEP are primarily, you know, trauma, like the pneumothorax, for example, and the hemodynamic compromise, like I talked about at the start of the section, would you, for example, uh, use pressors and fluids to allow you to have a higher PEEP? Or do you know, if you thought the PEEP was a problem, would you just lower the PEEP? I would lower the PEEP. Right. And then the other question is, well, the other place where I get away from high PEEP is when I run into issues with plateau pressures, right? So we're talking about low tidal volume ventilation, talk about ARMA, and- there's some degree of just having a higher PEEP recruits more of the lung, but in general, if you're increasing the end-expiratory pressure, you increase the end-inspiratory pressure or the plateau pressure as well. Uh, so I find it I find it hard to stay under a plateau pressure of 30 when, for example, in alveoli, uh, the high PEEP table, if you're at FiO2 100% means you're at a PEEP of 22 to 24. You only got six to eight uh, centimeters of water to play with before you hit your plateau pressure of 30.
1: PEEP clearly will influence plateau pressure, but it may influence it in interesting ways, right? If you actually recruit, lung tissue, atelectatic lung, your peep may not be totally reflected in your plateau pressure and your plateau pressure may actually go down because you actually now are putting tidal volume into more volume because you've recruited additional volume by increasing peep. So that's this kind of complex interaction. And in fact, for a while, I thought I was genius because I would titrate peep based off of whether of what change it made to the plateau pressure. If I turned up peep and the plateau went up by more than I turned up the peep, that was too much and I needed to turn it down. And if I turned up the peep and the plateau went up by less than I turned up the peep, then I recruited long and they needed that
0: peep. You mean I'm not a genius? That's what
1: I do? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You know, it takes time at the bedside. But I think subsequent studies have questioned whether that's really beneficial to our patients. So we, at least I stopped spending that time at the bedside if – If it's not truly beneficial to the patients, then I should spend my time on things that are beneficial to the patients. This is really hard for me because I think the right answer here is yes, sometimes, and that sometimes is what we have no idea on. So for example, the obese patient that we take care of a lot in our ICU probably benefits from higher P. We haven't studied it to know for sure, but probably when they're laying on their back with a bunch of truncal obesity compressing their lungs, they could benefit from some some higher PEEP. Yeah, sure. But
0: the evidence that these guidelines are going off of are are showing a benefit in, again, a more general population, not just those obese patients.
1: Yeah. But in general, if you take all of the trials of, of low versus high PEEP, high PEEP wasn't beneficial. Yeah. You have to start doing subgroups of those trials, right? Yeah. Well it's the group that has moderate to severe Yes. And once you start doing subgroups of other trials, you bring in risks and oh, biases sure. and all those sorts of things. So so I do think there's there's a little bit of in light of our cold weather storm right now, there's a little bit of softer ice that we're standing on that maybe might break through. I think I think the term is thin ice. Thinner ice? Yeah, not softer ice. I like my soft ice. Yeah, for your for your sort sensitive like, teeth. Sort of like an icy instead of a cube that you're crunching on. Oh, I hope you're not standing on an icy, Todd. That would be messy. And so I think, I think here, uh, high peep is good in some patients and you got to figure out which patients it is, uh, and probably not needed in other patients. And you got to figure out which patients those are. And if the patient is becoming hypotensive and I'm having to give fluids and pressors because of the peep, that's a patient that I probably shouldn't be using that high of peep in.
0: Right. I think that's what, that was the point I was, I was trying to get at is quick anecdote. We had a, we have a colleague who trained at a different institution and it was an offhand remark, but he said, Wow, you guys here are really peep allergic. And just meaning to say that uh, he is used to using higher peeps than he's typically seen around the unit here. And it was an offhand remark, which just kind of made me uh, reflect on my own practice and think about, oh, like, what are, what are my peep? What kind of, where am I on the peep table and otherwise? But I've been just so limited trying to actively use higher peeps because of hemodynamic compromise, because of, well, okay, I, I'm okay with using higher PEEPs, but I still want to keep my plateau pressure under 30. And I, I think I i have tried more to implement it, but I just don't think even with being intentional about it, I've been super successful in, in keeping at higher PEEPs.
1: The, the other thing I would, I would say you need to watch out for if you're using higher PEEPs is, is if you're in an institution like ours where your protocol for initiating a spontaneous breathing trial has a PEEP value written into it, Like ours does, ours is eight or less of peep. Yeah. Then if you're on higher peep and your respiratory therapist or your protocol doesn't start because they're on too high of peep, you may actually be delaying extubation in that patient because you aren't giving them an opportunity to show you that they can be liberated from the ventilator faster than, than otherwise. And so in patients who I've done higher peeps in, you know, you're on 50% and 10 or 50% and 12 of peep. And I say, I know this is a peep level that's higher than our protocol says to do an spt but i think i'm going to do an spt on this patient every day because they're going to surprise me and show me that they they might be able to breathe without an endotracheal tube i thought you were going to say something
0: different i thought you were going to say if you're at an institution that does ecmo well by the time you get to these points where you're having these super super high peeps you're talking about that patient for ecmo and a lot of these patients end up on ecmo and then you don't necessarily need those
1: high peeps yeah that's fair too that's fair too. The, I was thinking of that when you said the patient's on 100% and 24 a PEEP, and I'm like that patient. But let's, right, exactly. let's also be honest there are there are a large population of patients that are not great ECMO candidates. Of course, that have ARDS that you might have to do a ventilation strategy to try and do the best that you can to get them through because ECMO is not a great. Yeah, it,
0: uh, it's just really hard for me. In them. It's really just hard for me to conceptualize the patient who has bad ARDS and therefore bad lung compliance. And you're going to throw their peep up to 24 and expect that you're going to get a plateau pressure of less than 30. Um, you're going to have to really decrease your tidal volumes to get there.
1: The way you end up with a plateau pressure of less than 30 in that patient is they get a pneumothorax, <sighs> you put in a chest tube, they have an air leak, and then your plateau pressure comes down nicely.
0: <sighs> on that note, I think that's all we have for episode 29 of the ICU Ed and Toddcast. If you have any questions for Todd or myself or anything that you want us to talk about in the future, you can hit us up at icuedandtodcast at com. You can also hit us up on the social at icucast at edchan, that's E-D-Q-I-N, and at Todd Rice underscore ICU. First of all, please... Don't do that, what Todd just ended on. But thank you, Todd. Thank you, and congratulations to all the authors. Thank you to the guideline committees. Thank you to Mike Gannon for the intro and outro music. Thank you to everyone listening, we will see you
1: next time. Let's go save some lives. Let's go treat some ARNES.
0: This podcast is made for educational purposes. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked material materials is not intended and should not be considered as medical advice and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. It's inevitable. We try to stay away from opinions, but all opinions represent our own and not of any entity that we work at. Please keep this in mind as you enjoy the podcast.